There is a great verse in Isaiah, they're all great, but Isaiah 37 has this really great verse where God is speaking uh, to Hezekiah and he says to him, this year you will eat what grows by itself, the second year what springs from that, in the third year you'll sow and reap, you'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Now, two things I love about this verse. Number one, it reminds us that God is in control of the future. Lots of people make predictions about what's going to happen in the future. God is the only one who can actually say what's going to happen, and he's concerned about this year and next year and the year after. And we're thinking together as we close out our series on the book of Isaiah, we're doing a four-week sort of mini-series at the end, on end times and how are things going to come to pass. And it's incredibly encouraging to remember God has decreed the future and he is the one who is in control of everything that happens. The second thing I love about this verse is that the future with God gets better and better. And so here we've got just a little picture of this in Hezekiah's life. God says, I know you've been through trouble. I know you've been through difficulty. There is famine, uh, there is difficulty because they're under siege, but next year's gonna be better. The year after that, better than that. And the third year, even better. And we've been thinking together about the future and we are in the midst of a world in which there's trouble, in which we feel besieged, in which there is difficulty. But the good news is, is from Isaiah's point of view, what's coming is better where we are now, better than where he was. And the good news for us is what's coming after us, better. What's coming after that, better. And only God in his infinite power and his infinite love can cause the future to be better and better and better. And this is our great hope. This is not the best it's going to get. Uh, this is simply the beginning of God working out his plans for the future. And the promise is he's in control of the future and they will get better and better and better. Well, this morning I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, it's page 611, 611, if you're using the church Bibles. As Andy reminded us, this is our last week in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah closes out his book with a vision of the future. And so what we've been doing over the last three weeks, and then counting this one four weeks, is we've been doing a little mini-series on what's coming in the future. And the reason that we're doing this is this is how Isaiah ends his book. And it's important for us to understand how it is that God has, uh, what it is that God has coming for us so that we might live in accordance with the future that has already been decreed, that is coming. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, it might fill us with hope. And for those who are not yet believers in Jesus, you might come to understand that now is the day. Now is the day to accept that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Isaiah 66 is going to provide a great launching off point 
for us to look back a little bit at where we've been in the book of Isaiah, but also to look forward to what's coming. Read verses, look at verses one and two as I read them to us. Isaiah 66, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Isaiah closes where it started with the immensity of God. About a year ago, we began our series in Isaiah 6, and we talked about the fact that the train of his robe fills the temple. We sang that this morning. In my mind, whenever I sang that song, I kind of pictured like a throne room, kind of like this sanctuary, and there's like a big throne up here, and God was kind of seated on the throne, and he had a really big robe, and like the robe spread out, kind of fanned out that direction and this direction. That's not the picture. The picture is the train of his robe, the idea is, is the hem of his robe, just the very smallest corner of the hem of his robe fills the biggest building in Israel. And the idea is not, God is not just up six or seven steps seated on a big throne. He says, heaven is my throne. The heavens, the universe is God's throne. Earth is what he rests his feet on. He is so enormous that earth cannot contain him. Israel can't contain him. The temple certainly can't contain him. America can't contain him. The entire earth cannot contain him. The immensity of God. And so here at the end, we are reminded once more, this God that we are talking about, this God that we are loving and learning about, is the one who fills the whole universe and this God looks with favor on those who are humble, contrite, willing to say they're sorry, and who tremble at his word. And remember how Isaiah opened. We, we quoted it again today, Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. God says, come now, let's settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. If you are humble and contrite and you tremble at my word, it will go well for you. This enormous God who fills the whole universe said, I will bless you. You will experience my favor. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. And although we're not going to look at it, go home and read them for yourselves. Verses 3 through 14 talk about the fact that God is not pleased when people honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And we looked in the book of Isaiah. God says, look, you've been saying to me, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to say back to you, blah, 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 blah. God talked about the fact that, look, if you choose wickedness, you will be devoured. 
You think that your ceremonies are going to protect you. You think that your spirituality or your religious acts that you're going through are going to protect you. I know what's going on in your heart. I created this whole world. Earth is my footstool. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He says, I see what you're doing. If you keep it up, you will be devoured. And then he closes his book with a vision of the future. Listen as I read in verses 15 and following. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant lands who at, that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. They will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die, and the fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind." Isaiah has a picture of the future, but it's poetry. It's a poetic vision of what's coming, and he's not differentiated with clarity when certain things happen. He simply painted one picture of the future. And so what we've been doing over the last three or four weeks is laying out from some other passages passages in scripture, what this framework is that's coming to help make sense of the things Isaiah is saying. Let me remind you visually of the framework we've been using. There is the first coming of Christ. From Isaiah's point of view, that is still future, but from our point of view, it's past. There is now, which is where we are. You can hear some of that in this language. Did you hear about evangelists going out to Tubal and to Greece and to Lydia and sharing the gospel. So let's pray today for our team from Lesvos who is trying to be a gospel witness by loving their neighbors on the island of Lesvos. They've gone there to work with refugees. Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled. We talked about the next major event that's coming is the second coming of Christ. 
You should have heard language about that in Isaiah 66. The Lord coming with chariots of fire, coming in judgment to judge the nations, the second coming of Christ. We talked about the fact that Jesus will set up a thousand-year kingdom on the earth, a millennial kingdom. Millennial just means a thousand years. You should have heard some of that language in Isaiah 66, the idea that I will select some to be Levites and priests to reign and rule alongside of Jesus on the earth and that people will bring offerings to Jesus on this earth. And then what comes after the millennial kingdom the end of time, and the eternal state. And you should have heard some of that language in Isaiah 66. The new heavens and the new earth, the idea that those who are part of God's kingdom live forever and that those are rejected, suffer torment outside of the kingdom of God forever. This is the framework that we've been using to help make clear some of the poetic language that's in Isaiah and where it fits. On week one, I simply laid out the framework. Week two, we talked about the millennial kingdom. And we talked about how there are rewards during the millennial kingdom for the things that we do now. Week three, Tom last week took us through the eternal state and talking through just some glimpses, six things, about what's going to happen uh, in heaven. What we'd like to do today is go back to the framework and expand it a little more and explain a few more of the details the way that God has made them clear in some other portions of Scripture. Now, as a disclaimer, when we go and do this, I already said when I laid out this framework that there are lots of good Christian people who love Jesus and have the Spirit who disagree with how exactly this plays itself out. As we go into even more of the details, it gets even more confusing and different people read different passages different ways. But having said that, what I'm going to lay out for you is what our church believes, it's what I believe, and it's what I think makes the best sense of the various passages that we're going to look at. Are you with me? So what we want to do in order to expand this is to recognize, first of all, that even though Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets looking forward talk about the coming of the Lord, What they mean by the first coming of Jesus is simply a title that encapsulates multiple things that happen. Let me show you what those are. If I was going to expand that line on my chart, there's five things that we really, when we say the first coming of Jesus, we have his birth, Christmas. We have the preaching of John the Baptist. Isaiah says there's going to be a messenger that comes to prepare the way for the Lord. The preaching of John the Baptist is part of Jesus' first coming. Number three, Jesus' earthly ministry. The miracles that he did, the teachings that he performed, the disciples that he trained. That's all part of his first coming. Number four, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He dies on a cross, raised from the dead on the third day. That's part of the first coming. And then finally, the ascension to heaven. Jesus returns to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, creating the church that we now are part of. When we call it the first coming, that's just a label that covers all five of those events, but it's easier to refer to it as the first coming. And so the Old Testament and sometimes the New Testament simply refer to it as the first coming 
But when we say first coming, we really mean there's five major things that are happening. And although I drew it as a little line on the chart, it encompasses about 30 to 40 years. So it is with the other two lines on the chart. The second coming of Jesus and the end of time. And so what I'd like to do this morning is take this framework and show you that what I drew with the one line that says the second coming of Jesus actually encapsulates four events and the end of time, two events. And with this framework, we want to better understand in more detail what is coming. So let's start with the second coming of Jesus and expand that. The first event that is part of the second coming is what we refer to as the rapture and the first resurrection. If you're taking notes, you'll also know there's some other passages that I put there. This is so you can go back and read other passages along with the ones I'm gonna give you this morning. Uh, because there's lots of passages in the Bible that talk about the future. And the purpose of this framework is to help put those in the right places so that when you read them, it's not as confusing as it could be. The rapture is told to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, meaning who've died in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and left until the coming of the Lord, till his second coming, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Seven years ago, my dad died. This is a very traumatic, sad, uh, heart-rending sort of event. This passage was written to give me hope. You've lost loved ones. This passage is written to give you hope. What it means is, is when my dad died, his spirit was separated from his mortal body. His spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 5, immediately went into Jesus' presence in the current heaven. Paul says to be absent from the body, meaning to die, is to be present with the Lord. His physical body was cremated and the remains were buried in the ground. What Paul is saying is that if Jesus were to return in the next 20 minutes, what would happen is the first thing is Jesus would appear in the clouds. <clears throat> there would be the voice of the archangel announcing his coming, a loud trumpet call, and the cremated remains of my dad would raise up out of this ground and Jesus would reassemble and recreate his physical body. 
He would bring with him my dad's spirit as well as the spirits of all those who died in Christ, meaning as Christians. Those spirits will return with Jesus. And according to this passage, Jesus will reunite my dad's spirit with his body and then my dad will be resurrected. That's the first resurrection. Just after that, it happens in the blink of an eye, so there's not a lot of time lag. Those of us who are still alive who are believers in Jesus will be caught up, also transformed. There will be a resurrection that happens to us even though we haven't died. 1 Corinthians 15 explains that. I gave you that passage. You can read that on your own. Our flesh has to be transformed because these bodies can't inherit the kingdom that's coming. So all of this, those who've already died, whose spirits are in heaven and whose bodies are still on the earth, and those of us who are still alive at this event, all of us are reunited and notice we are caught up in the clouds with Jesus to meet the Lord in the air. So he's not yet returned to the earth. He's in the air to be with him forever. He then returns to heaven with all the resurrected saints, you and I, who have been translated, and those who were dead who came with them who have now been reunited with their bodies, all of us as a group return to heaven with Jesus, which leads then to the second event that's part of the um, second coming. Can you put us back on our chart? There we go. The second event is what we know of as the tribulation. Now, what I'd like you to do is take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation, which is the very last book in the Bible. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, just for a brief second. That's page 991 in the church Bibles. The book of Revelation is intimidating. And so what I want to do uh, while we're doing this is show you just kind of how Revelation is laid out so that you can go back at some point and read it and understand it somewhat for yourselves as you do this. Revelation 1. Okay, you're gonna, we're just going to flip some pages together. Okay, Revelation 1. Chapter 2. Keep flipping with me. Chapter 3. Chapter 4. Chapter 5. Those first five chapters go with the now piece. They are describing things that are happening in this age. They are talking about things that are going on that are relevant to you and I now. Starting in chapter six, and if you want, as you're flipping through and you have, if you have an NIV, just glance for a moment at the titles above the chapters or the sections. Chapter six, see where it says the seals? Okay, those are not animals. Those are like seals on documents. <laughs> yes, an attack of seals happens. Now, there are no killer seals in the end times that I know of. Sorry. Chapter six, the seals. <laughs> chapter seven, keep turning. Chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, now you're reading things like the woman and the dragon, chapter 13, the beast out of the sea, chapter 14, 
chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, and the first half of chapter 19, those are all describing what's happening on earth while we, and all those who've died before us, are with Jesus in heaven. It's called the tribulation, and it lasts for seven years. And if you want to go back and read through those chapters in Revelation, there will be lots of stuff that confuses you. I've read it many, many times. There's still stuff that confuses me. But hopefully you'll at least see the framework. That's not really talking about stuff going on now. That's describing what happens during the tribulation. And you're going to hear things like uh, the beast and the false prophet, uh, things like the number 666, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seventh seal, things that you might be familiar with from movies or pop culture, things. This is where it came from, and it's describing an apocalyptic language, what's going on on the earth. But as you can imagine, if the spirit, who is with Christians, and all believers are gone, this is a time of God's wrath and difficulty on the earth. We call it the tribulation. The third thing that happens at the end of those seven years, chapter 19, verse 11, what we know of as the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon. I should have also labeled this, and because you're taking notes, you can do better than what I have up here. It should say Armageddon and the salvation of the nation of Israel. I'll explain that in a second. Revelation 19, verse 11. Again, if you want to read this together at home as a family, just know when you get to 1911, we're switching from uh, the tribulation uh, into the battle of Armageddon. Verse 11. I saw heaven open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one, but he, that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. This is Jesus' return to the surface of the earth. And who is coming with him? We are. The armies of heaven, that includes the angels, but who is with Jesus forever? We are. And so remember, we've been in heaven for seven years, and we are returning with Jesus because wherever Jesus goes, we go with him because we are one with him. And he returns after those seven years for this battle that we know of as Armageddon. Now, why do I say it is the salvation of the Jewish nation? Is if you read Revelation, what you'll find out is, is that everybody in the world turns on the nation of Israel to destroy them. And Jesus comes as the Davidic Messiah, the son of Abraham, to rescue the Jewish people from annihilation. Paul talks about this in Romans 11. He's talking about what is the future for ethnic Israel? What is the future for those who are biological descendants 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, you can go back and read all of Romans 9 through 11. It's talking about this one thing. At the end of Romans 11, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part now until the full number of Gentiles has come in. What that means is, is during the now peace, Jewish people have a hard time seeing that Jesus is a Messiah and God has allowed that so that you and I who are not Jewish people, Gentiles, can come to faith. But there will come a point when the last Gentile has accepted Jesus as Messiah and it says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. That does not mean all Jewish people throughout history. It means all ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are alive at this moment at the Battle of Armageddon, they will be saved. Why? Well, as it is written, any guess what book, Old Testament book this is a quote from? Isaiah. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jesus is going to return, and the reason why Jewish people do not accept Jesus, for the most part, as Messiah, is because all of the promises in Isaiah and other Old Testament promises say he's going to come and set up a kingdom. And the Jewish people are like, well, where's the kingdom? And what we're trying to explain now is it's a spiritual kingdom now, but there is an earthly kingdom that's coming. When Jesus returns, he will be setting up that earthly kingdom. And instead of coming to die on a cross, which is a stumbling block to Jews, instead of dying on a cross, he'll, be come, on a, he'll come on a white horse with all the power and glory of heaven, and every Jewish person will realize that's the Messiah. And what happens when you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? You are saved. So all of Israel at that point will be saved. They're not saved because they're Jewish. If you are Jewish and you die before this event and you have not accepted Jesus as Messiah, you are not saved. You're not part of the kingdom. The only way for someone to be saved is to accept Jesus as Messiah. But the point is, when he comes on the clouds with the armies of heaven, there won't be any doubts. And when he comes and rescues ethnic Jewish people from certain destruction of the armies of this world, every ethnic Jewish person is going to go, that's the Messiah and so they'll be saved. That's the battle of Armageddon. And then the fourth event that makes up the second coming. We looked at this two weeks ago in the parable in Luke 19. There will be judgment and reward for believers. Jesus has got this whole army with him. There is a judgment for angels. First Corinthians 6 talks about that. We're not talking about that right now. But for believers, it says, remember the Luke 19 parable? The guy goes away for a while to be made king and then he comes back as king and he sits down with his servants when he returns and he says, okay, what'd you do with the stuff I gave you? To the one who did a lot with what God gave him, he says, well done, take charge of 10 cities. To the one who did a medium amount, he says, really no praise, but hey, take charge of five cities, which is in itself a praise. And then to the one who really did nothing with the stuff God gave him, with the spirit that Jesus entrusted to him, he says, you wicked servant. You still get to have eternal life. You get to still be part of the kingdom, but you're in charge of nothing. That happens at that point. So Jesus returns, and he's going to set up his kingdom. 
and you've got all of these ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who have not died and have not been resurrected, who now have a chance to fulfill all those prophecies from Isaiah where you're like, you get to give birth, and if anybody dies before 100 years, it will be like they died very early on. All of those millennial promises will be happening. Jesus is like, we got to have some people to help run this earth. And those assignments will be allotted at that point. Again, just like with the first coming, we say first coming, but it's about 30 to 40 years and lots of events happening. When we say second coming, it's at least seven years. There's multiple events that are happening. Everybody with me? Okay. We then go through a thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. And if you're in the book of Revelation still, I hope you are. That is Revelation 20 verses one to seven. That's simply describing that millennial kingdom. Lots of stuff from, I I gave you Zechariah 14. That tells about the millennial kingdom. We've looked at passages in Isaiah. That talks about the millennial kingdom. Now we move through the millennial kingdom and we have to expand one more point, which is the eternal state, the end time. We're in Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, so that's the end of the thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Now you're like, well, wait a second. Who is this? Remember, living through the millennial kingdom, there are two groups of people. There are those, you and I, and those who've died before us who are Christians, who've already been resurrected, already been judged and already been rewarded who are reigning and ruling with Jesus. There is another group on the earth and these are biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were rescued in the battle of Armageddon who did not die and who are still marrying and giving birth and filling out and spreading over the whole earth. Over a thousand years, you have a lot of generations Uh, that are filling the earth. At the end of that thousand years, Satan is released and he goes to deceive those, uh, not us, uh, but those who are ethnically part of the nation of Israel. And some of them will fall for the deception. Keep going. Verse nine, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The line that we say is the end of time. The first event that happens is the final battle. This is the final battle and the judgment of Satan. This great enemy of God's kingdom this one who has caused us so many problems, will finally be judged for the wickedness and the sinfulness and the evil, the havoc he has wreaked on this earth. And he will be condemned to an eternity separate from God from what we know of as hell or the lake of fire. The second thing that happens, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. This is the God whose earth is his, uh, the heavens are his throne. This immense, enormous God that Isaiah has trying to get getting us, has been trying to get us to come to grips with. At this point, he is so huge that the universe runs from him. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what we know of as the great white throne judgment. You and I will not be judged at this point. If you remember, our judgment took place back around the second coming with the reward and judgment for believers. This is the second resurrection that Revelation 20 talks about. And this now all the dead who are not Christians are now raised from the dead, meaning their spirits, which are currently in Hades, will be reunited with their reconstituted bodies and they will be resurrected, resurrected unfortunately to face judgment. And there will be books. And the books that are open is there will be books about their deeds. This is the great news about being a Christian. All the books about our deeds, all erased, all the bad stuff. It's gone and forgiven. This is the covenant God made. But those who did not accept this covenant, those books are still written. And all the stuff they did is still written out. They will be judged according to what they did. And then their eternal destiny will be decided on the fact that they chose not to believe and therefore their names are not in the book of life. And this is as sobering a scene as you could ever imagine. A book opened. And if your name is not there, you are consigned to an eternity separated from God. This is what we know of as the great white throne judgment. This is not uh, our judgment. This is for the judgment of all the dead. And then, at the end of time, all the wicked, all those who've rejected Jesus, all those who said blah, 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 blah to God, the beast, the antichrist, Satan, sin itself, even death is all thrown into the lake of fire. And then Revelation 21 and 22, we enter the eternal state. Now, why does Isaiah end his book with this imagery? He doesn't lay all of this out. But if you go back and read Isaiah 60 to 66, you'll hear many of these kinds of themes and ideas presented in a very poetic way. Why does Isaiah choose to end his book this way? It's because of how he started his book. Come now, let's settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. 
Now, when we first heard those verses at the beginning of Isaiah, probably you reacted to them the same way I reacted to them, which was, hey, if you choose to believe, if you choose to obey, if you choose to be willing, good things will happen. And if you choose not to, bad things will happen. That's true. Isaiah wants you to know this is the point for eternity. This is not simply for today or tomorrow or the next year. This is the truth of God. And God says, now is the time to settle the matter. This is the future that is coming. It has been decreed. There will be no stopping it. And all the nations of the earth that rage against the Lord, they're his footstool. His feet are resting on the earth. He has created this whole thing. He is immense. The universe verse is simply his throne that he sits on. When he comes to execute his future, it will happen this way and no one will stop it. And God says, if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured. But listen to the devouring. Chapter 66 of Isaiah. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. And the worms who eat them, that's the devouring, will not die. And the fire that burns them will not be quenched. The devouring is far worse than you could ever possibly imagine. And God says, for all those who will not listen, for all those who will not accept Jesus as Lord, when I say you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Suddenly now we have an immense vision of what that really means. And an immense God who is executing an immense plan. And he says, look, today's the day. Let's settle the matter. Your sins, all that stuff written in all those books, all erased. This is the covenant I'm making with you. If you will simply accept Jesus as Lord. All that stuff is gone. Your name is written in the book of life. Your judgment moves from the great white throne judgment back into the judgment which involves rewards and participating in a millennial kingdom. And God says, today is the day. I'm not just saying to you, if you don't get this together, you're going to have a bad week or a bad year. I'm saying you're going to have a bad eternity. Come, let's settle the matter. Come, I'm not angry with you yet. Come, there's still time. And for those of us who are believers, he said, didn't I tell you if you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things of the land? And you and I might have thought, well, that just means next week or next year or years from now. God says, you don't even understand. Your view of good things is so small. What I have planned for you gets better and better and better. Because the greatest thing about that eternal state, Tom pointed this out last week, it's absolutely 100% true. You and I get to be with the God who created this world, who is the source of all joy, who anything good that you like about this world, I mean, I know that when you think about the eternal state, it can be like, will it really be fun to be in heaven and bowing down and worshiping all times? Think of it this way. The God who created every good thing you like about this earth will be recreating a new earth with all the good things you like about this earth, without all the bad things. And far, far better than anything you've experienced. And he will be with you. The one who has loved you when everybody else abandoned you. The one who refused to abandon you to your sins. The one who comforts you. The one who is with you. The one who knows you better than you know yourself. 
the one who has loved you infinitely, totally, and completely, we will finally see him face to face. And we'll just simply experience his infinite love forever and ever and ever. God says, that's what I mean when I say you'll eat the good things of the land. And at the beginning of Isaiah, our view of God is very small. Our view of judgment is small. Our view of good things is small. And by the end of Isaiah, the purpose of Isaiah is to expand our minds. To say, your sins are worse than you think they are. The devouring that is coming should scare you to death. And the good things that are coming will blow your mind. They will be immeasurably more than you could ever ask for or imagine. And this is why Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth, the whole universe, the whole of eternity is full of his glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we like Isaiah simply say, we are people of unclean lips. We're people of small minds. We're doubtful, frightened, scared people. But God, when we see you in your glory, our fears melt away. Lord, when we see the depth of your love for us, when we see your plans and purposes, over and over again, Lord, you said, do not be ignorant of these things. Lord, we've tried our best to teach and to understand, but Lord, you have to give uh, clarity. Explain to us what is coming. Impress upon our hearts, Lord, the urgency. Today is the day to settle the matter. And for those who are not yet believers, Lord, create faith. Lord, for those who are believers but are not living, let them know what is coming. There is a judgment. Um, for a thousand years, it will be a bad thing. Lord, have mercy. Lord, forgive us when we say blah, blah, blah. Forgive us, Lord, when we honor you with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. Be merciful to us, Father. Forgive us for the ways in which we thought we could be you. Uh, we thought we could run this earth. We thought we could be God. We thought we could know best how our lives work. And Lord, we, call, we fall down before you and we simply say, there is no one like you. You know the end from the beginning. You plan and decree all things. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who's ever been your counselor? Who have you ever asked for advice from? Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. The whole earth is full of your glory. Fill this sanctuary and this people with your glory today. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.